Hi, I'm James P. Friel. And I'm Dean Holland. It's time to fasten your seatbelts, boys and girls. That's right. If you're an entrepreneur who's wanting to take your business to the next level and have a bit of fun while getting cutting edge advice on your business, marketing, and sales, welcome to Just the Tips, arguably the best podcast in the entire world. I guess that's good, right? Yeah, sounds good to me. All right. That was easy. That was the easiest thing we did all day. Yeah. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Just the Tips. This is your host, James P. Friel. I am thrilled that you guys are here with us today. We have a guest who I think is going to bring a really unique angle towards how you look at your business, how you think about things, how you even protect your business. And I'm very excited that we have Brian Gill here, and I'll bring him on the show in just one second. But as you guys know, I host this show with the Bearded Wonder from the United Kingdom, So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the studio, riding in on his noble steed, the one, the only, Mr. Dean Holland. (laughs) Yes. Oh, it is good to be back with you, James. How are you doing, sir? I'm awesome. I'm awesome. Like I just, uh, I felt like I needed to bring some energy into your intro today. An energy you bought and it was well received, I'm sure. Thank you. And how is your, uh, how is your noble steed doing today? The Noble Steed's good. Just relaxing here after carrying my uh, festively plump ass all the way through the finish line. <laughs> right. So you're carrying a little <laughs> holiday weight then, from what yes, I understand? Yes. Yeah. We won't, we won't talk too much about that. This is why we do a podcast and not a video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, we've got an awesome show today. Brian Gill, who is an expert yeah. at angel investing, startups, understanding, even like all things security for small and mid-sized businesses is here. Uh, we're thrilled to have you, Brian. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Guy. I heard a rumor that this might be the greatest podcast on planet Earth. Is that is that accurate? We we have heard that same rumor. So, it, yeah. I mean, if enough people are hearing it, it's probably true. It must be true. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an honor to be here. Well, thank you. Yeah. Dean's yes, mom yeah, certainly thinks this is the best podcast in the world. <laughs> yeah, our first and uh, only listener. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, I have to ask you a serious question, Brian. Are you really Dean's mom just pretending to be a guest? And a I am. I am legitimately. You, you just stumbled upon, you know, one of the <laughs> topics, your dream podcast topic of, you know, authentication and user authentication, which is a critical part to your digital security. Yes. Awesome. Well, that's, we'll get into that. So, so Brian, you've been somebody who started several companies. You've helped raise over a hundred million dollars for those companies. And I think one of the things I really want to talk to you about is regardless of whether somebody's going out there and raising money or not, what are some of the things that startup entrepreneurs should be doing to position themselves well for growth? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, we're all you're going to get into something because you think you can grow it and, and make it big. So, personally, like all the companies that I was a part of founding and starting or co-founding, we always tried to, I guess, kind of two rules of thumb. You know, bootstrap as far as you can to to actually make sure that you can have as large of a valuation as you can in those earliest rounds. And then always, and then be kind of take more money than you think, because if if you're not careful, you can kind of get stuck in this constant cycle of fundraising and fundraising takes a lot of 
it causes a lot of brain damage to the executives, right? You, you want to make sure that when you do it and you achieve it, that you have hopefully a couple of years to really get out of that mode. But then don't ever give yourself too short a runway. It, it takes probably like a minimum of six months to really have a positive thing happen when you start fundraising. So, you know, don't start fundraising three months before you need it because mm. it's just not going to go your way. Maybe, maybe even just taking a step back. Like what about the, the idea of, because uh, there's a lot of people and I'm sure there's some of our listeners who have a great idea, but how, do, how do you, or maybe even a hundred great ideas, right? You start talking with all these entrepreneurs and everyone's like, Oh, we could do this. We could do this. We could do this. How do you, how do you, how have you done it? in terms of narrowing down like the feasibility of an idea and evaluating the idea sure. and like all of those things. Yeah. I mean, you've got to, I personally am looking for like very serious problems and very serious pain points, you know, so, so like, the first so, company, so like for example, like Dean's holiday weight would be a serious problem. <laughs> <and pain laughs> yeah. You know, I, I want, when you start thinking about it, like, oh man, that's going to be hard. So the first company, the first successful company that I started that I actually still am involved with uh, is a, is called Gilware Data Recovery. And the, the, the pain point was you have all these, you know, electronic storage manufacturers, and this is 16 or 17 years ago, and they don't create an owner's manual for how these things operate. And in fact, they try to keep all their designs very secretive. And they're very complex electromechanical devices with electrical engineering and mechanical engineering and a lot of code that runs, proprietary code called firmware. And when those things break, good luck. And, and when we were sitting around trying to think of what business we were going to start, you know, 17 years ago, we had one of, we were, we had a hundred ideas and that one happened to win because it sounded really hard. I personally am a computer scientist and I know personally, a lot of my friends were electrical engineers and mechanical engineers. And then we did a little bit of market research and realized there was just two companies in the U.S., that we could find that we're doing it. There might've been more, but we could only find two of them. So it seemed like a very scarce resource. And, and that's, that's, that was the thought process behind starting that one. Anyways. And like, so what were some of the other ideas that didn't, that, you know, kind of got chopped and left on the cutting room floor? You know, a, a lot, a lot of more whimsical stuff, you know, a lot more entertainment based stuff. You know, I, I've always been a gamer and we had ideas, still have ideas for video games that we had. Again, this is pretty early in the days of the Internet. I've started and kind of stopped and failed all kinds of times. But we had basically at one point the concept of which now almost everybody who's in business gets like 37 emails a day about it. But we were like indexing the whole internet, trying to basically put together a search engine specifically for businesses, not to necessarily find businesses as a consumer, but as like a marketing mm. professional. So basically something, you know, a search engine that would go to a website, figure out, oh, this is a plumbing business in Albuquerque. And if anybody was interested in buying that information, we could, you know, sell them those mm -hmm. lists. So again, everybody there, again, there's hundreds and hundreds of services that do it now. But again, we started it, we wrote a search engine and then it, it was harder than, we didn't have AWS back then to just store the 
you know, petabytes of data that's required. But yeah, that's, that's just a couple of the ones that we thought about. I could go on and on about all my crazy failed ideas. Uh, I think I'm going to want to hear about at least one or two, especially because Dean has come clean on this show about his, <laughs> uh, he raised parakeets and they all killed each other. That was one of his... <laughs> <laughs> I've never, never murdered a parakeet. Technically, he didn't either. He let the dirty, he let them do their own dirty work. <laughs> but what I was, what I wanted to ask was like, are there, are, have you seen themes in the businesses that have worked out really well and themes in the ones that haven't? Like to be able to contrast those yeah. things. Big, big barriers to entry, you know, like the theme of everything that I've done that's that's gone well, there is a large barrier of entry that requires a sophisticated team of experienced humans to tackle. You know, you don't want to start something that anybody else can do. Right. Mm, mm. But then there's probably people who are working on really big complex problems and either they don't figure them out or they have the wrong team or something like that as well. Yep. Right. Cause they're, and then we fail. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, when I'm trying to isolate what problem we're going to solve, I want it to be a big one. And then when you think about it, you're like, it's daunting and it's scary. And you're like, Oh God, could we even do this? Like that's, that's when you know you're on the right path. Interesting. Interesting. So Dean, do you, uh, I guess I didn't give you any time to talk about your spectacular budgie failure. <laughs> I like to uh, I like to not dwell on that too much. Right. That is uh, quite a painful part of my past. Still PTSD from that situation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. For the birds yeah, too. Absolutely. <laughs> Rest in peace. What were uh, what have been some of the spectacular failures, Brian? You know that that you think like not just illustrate some stuff, but are actually really good story. Well, I mean, I try to limit my spectacular part of that failure, you know, when you, cause I am an idea guy and, and I've had a notebook with hundreds of different types of companies that you want to start. And I had one idea that was, and again, this one was an older one. So this was again, probably 20 years ago, I had an idea and it was about, I wanted to make a website called buildastory.com. And I wanted to have basically an interactive website where parents could have their kids go to it and basically we'd have some artwork and they could drag and drop it and then actually put in the words and you know basically at the end of it they could save it their parents could review the story that their child had quasi written and then optionally try to monetize by basically letting them pay 40 bucks and get a printed version of that book so I thought it's a pretty cute concept. I wasn't a parent at the time. I like the concept even more now. And I was a pretty good programmer. And I hired a couple graphics guys and another guy who's a good backend server programmer. And we basically, it just never achieved launch. Like we had like a quasi beta where you could almost do it, but the technology was really kind of half baked. You know, there, this was kind of, again, 20 years ago looked a lot different as far as how much heavy lifting you had to do to even make just a normal interactive website, let alone have a bunch of graphics and all this stuff happening, right? And the reason that one failed primarily is not because of the technology, but A, you know, I didn't raise any funds. I really wasn't confident enough to, to go do that, even though I was like geographically like 
in the Valley where you do that, you know, that's, there was a lot of that were you activity. Not were you not confident and, in the idea or you weren't confident in yourself? No, it was more about right. me, personal confidence as a 21 or 22 year old person to walk into a room full of people with bags of money and, and gray hairs and, and <laughs> talk about do those this. guys ride in on um, those, that, in those meetings on horses like Dean, or do they normally walk in? Yeah, they usually just yeah, walk right in. I see. That's where things went wrong. That's, that's what happened. <laughs> but so I didn't have that confidence. And I also it, to take that confidence a step further. Like I kept my day job and this was like a this kind of thing you would do at night. And when your day job is 50 or 55 hours a week and then your business partners, it's also kind of a unpaid hobby. You know, we just didn't take it seriously enough. And and after six or seven months, like, again, we had this beta and it just kind of died on the vine, you know, and, and it wasn't spectacular. It wasn't a huge bust, but I certainly learned from that experience. That's interesting. So let's shift gears for a second. So as an angel investor, because you've done that, you've been on that side of things as well. Like, what are some of the things that you look for in a company, if somebody comes to you, hey, here's an idea, what are the questions that you're asking them to determine the validity of the idea? I mean, you've talked about the big problem, the the you know, the expert team, like all of those other things. Are there other areas that you drill into? So first of all, the angel investing community, we we definitely tend to, at least I I don't ride on my own, right? If I'm the only person in the group that thinks it's a great idea it probably isn't to, to make that investment. Mm. So we definitely, there's two or three local angel groups here in Southern Wisconsin that we all kind of get together. And when a whole bunch of us or two thirds of us think the idea is good, you know, that's, that's kind of criteria number one. Now, as far as like vetting the idea, like I'm not going to rely on the founder for that or the pit, the person pitching me, obviously, that's where we need to go do our own market research and figure out what is this company worked fully baked? What is it worth now? The, the primary thing I look for, because obviously they all have a good idea. Like I, I haven't been in very many pitch meetings where the idea wasn't good or there wasn't something there. It's all about the team of people that's, that's pitching mm-hmm. it. <laughs> and I'm not saying experienced because a lot of times those scientific ideas are coming out of universities, right? And those grad students that are doing that research or that person that just got their PhD in something, they're on that bleeding edge, right? Right, And they don't have any business experience mm. or very limited business experience. But are they passionate? Are they sophisticated? Are they, do they communicate well in the room? Yeah, they're going to be really nervous, but are they going to be able to overcome that and communicate that? If you challenge them on some of these ideas, do they get incredibly defensive, turtle up? Do they say, ooh, that's a good point and get real sad? Or are they going to kind of defend that position with a bunch of facts, Mm -hmm. right? Because you could tell they've thought through those same criticisms Mm -hmm. already. Mm -hmm. Like, do you have any examples of you know, ideas. I mean, you don't have to talk about like the specifics if they're, you know, confidential or anything. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a company that a group of us decided to invest in called Allergy Amulet. And it's basically a little dongle you can wear that you can take these little food testing strips and just stick them in any kind of food, like a soup or even a liquid or even just 
like a plate of rice with stuff on it. And then you can stick it in the amulet and it'll tell you if there's any particular allergens in it. Like, hmm. oh, there's peanuts in this. Oh, there's soy in this. Oh, there's sesame seeds in this. Because it's a crazy big problem, mm-hmm. right? Because we all, I, my son has a sunflower allergy. We have no idea how, but he was diagnosed, you know, we were driving down the road and he was about four and he said, daddy, like my mouth hurts. And that was weird. And I looked back and he's like hiving up and it's like, oh my God, what the hell's going on here? Right. And luckily he was eating like one of those natural granola bars that's only has about six ingredients on it and kind of prides itself on that. So we, we took him to the doctor and we put him through all the tests and it was sunflower seeds or sunflower flour. So not sunflower oil. He's good with that. But he had, he goes into like, can't breathe, might die anaphylactic type shock if he gets exposed to freaking sunflower seeds. Like, how does that even happen? Medicine doesn't even really know, right? I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid, nobody was allergic to this stuff, or maybe they all ended up like Dean's parakeets, but... Um, <laughs> Whoa! You know, <laughs> sorry there's about a boomerang right it. there. <laughs> yeah, there's a callback. But uh, yeah, so that's a really hard problem, right? Because we're we want to eat, we want to take our kids to restaurants, we want to, you know, do all these things, and you kind of have to. You have to eat food, right? Yeah. And how would you even go about doing this? And like they have these molecular scientists and biomolecular scientists that figured out how to like make these like test strips that only adhere to the molecules of peanuts or all this stuff, and then you feed it into this little Bluetooth doohickey that tells you, hey, you're good, go ahead and eat that. It's crazy. How could you, it works, it works, the thing works. Now they're in that stage right now where, okay, how do we make like 100 million of these? Yeah, right, because yeah. they've done it in the lab, and you can stick it in there, and you can go to allergyalumulet.com and see Abby and her team using the thing that they built, and that's like the early stage they're in right now. But you know, that's just one example of a problem where I'm like, that's a huge problem. Holy crap! How would you solve that? It's almost magic that you could even do it. They're passionate. They're committed. They've been at it. You know, I mean, that's the type of thing that I like to put my personal money behind. See, I got just uh, just out of interest, just based off what you just said. Do you ever have an element of investing in something because of a personal association to that solution? Or do you try and keep that separate? Like the first story you just told there with, with, with them, for example. So it would naturally lead to, oh, you, you immediately took to that thing. Or do you try and separate that? For me, like, I'm not going to invest in any, like, tobacco companies, you know, or anything that I know is bad for society. But as far as when it comes time to actually write the check, I'm as likely sometimes to write a small check to buy, like, a with a group of people to buy, like, a $30 million commercial building in New Jersey as I, you know, or this scientific stuff. Like, it really is, for me personally, just about having a lot of different eggs and a lot of baskets. And you know, 80% of my portfolio is incredibly traditional. And, you know, I do, I never, these types of investments, like an allergy amulet, if it just goes, if it explodes and it all goes away, I'm never going to be personally really all that devastated by that in any kind of financial way. This is kind of the fun money, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's about, I mean, it's about the opportunity and balancing out whatever else you have in there. And a lot of them go, they they do well, and then you have more fun money. But then you take, you know, 70% of that revenue that was generated and stick it in 
traditional crap like you know index funds and things that are that are going to be more you know you don't want to there there's a lot of people that that did very very well and cashed one or two of those lottery tickets and then five years later they're bankrupt and you know because they kept trying to double or triple down. And at some point you got to ask yourself, like how much like multi-generational wealth do you really want? And and, at what point is all the stress of these really high risk investments worth? So like for me personally, like, again, I compared to most people, I definitely have a very risky looking thing, but it's something I've thought a lot about and I never, you know, when I'm writing these angel investment type things, like I never really expect it to come back. Mm, that's interesting. So you're so you're carving out a you know risk management size percentage of your portfolio, and that's what you're investing in those things. Yeah, and again, it's it's not one or two percent. That's pretty heavy. You know, it's it's twenty or twenty five percent. So again, it's pretty risky stuff, but and a lot of it pays. But you have to, as an angel investor, like you can't make one of these investments because there is probably a two thirds chance in this type of game that even if the idea is great, it's going to go bust because they had the wrong team or they weren't capitalized enough or competition reader its ugly head, or they start getting cannibalized overseas by somebody stealing their IP. I mean, there's a, there's a million different things that can go wrong. And, you know, you, you need, you can't, you can't invest in one or two companies. You got to invest in dozens and then hopefully two or three of them make it in return that 20 to 30 X that helped makes the whole thing yeah. make sense. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the uh, one of the other things I wanted to get your feedback on is like, so the, I mean, the whole, there's like all these different steps in the game of business, right? There's, you know, starting, whether you're going to bootstrap it, get investor money, like all those things. And then, you know, once you're, you know, for the lucky people who have created something and that's working, then you have to protect it, right? And I know that, you know, things in technology are changing so fast that, you know, one of your areas of expertise is actually, you know, protection and security and all of that stuff. Can you, can you sort of like really high level talk about what you're seeing out there that you think entrepreneurs need to be aware of from like technology threats and things of that nature? It's a good question, James. Thank you, Dean. I I strive to impress you. Just the tips, right? (laughs) So here we go. You know, it's so... And I know a little bit about this because for the last four years, um, I've been heavily involved with a company that used to be called Gilware Digital Forensics, which is now just took an angel round of financing, actually a Series A, and turned into Tetra Defense. And what that company does is respond to data breach and ransomware incidents and that that side of digital forensics. So and for so for those every for day, our listeners, can you just like really like what exactly is the like the real definition of ransomware? What does sure. that mean? Yeah, so and this so this happens we get dozens of calls a day with the other person on the other end works for usually a small to mid-sized business. So 10 to 500 employees is usually who's on the other end. And a cyber criminal has achieved access to their network, gained full understanding of their network topography. Who are all the users? What are all these systems? Where is all the accounting data? Where's all their important stuff? Where's all their architecture designs or uh, all that kind of stuff. And then they're gonna also understand where the backups are. And they are gonna have deleted all the backups and encrypted all the data with legitimate 
real encryption and everybody gets to the office on Monday morning and nothing works and they can access none of their files. And usually a good amount of their company's history has been stolen from them. And there is now a little note that says, you've gotten ransomware and this is how you contact us and you owe us 100 Bitcoins. Mm. Or 10 Bitcoins. They, they price these things thoughtfully. Again, they've been in your network. They they know you're a $30 million company. They might even know how much insurance you have for this kind of thing. And they're going to price it to be painful, but with a high probability that you're going to just basically cough up the money. Wow. And how, how popular is this sort of thing? Like, how, how, how real is this danger to companies? I mean, it's it's growing exponentially. I think the latest estimate is that for the year 2019, I don't know if it's been all the way out. And and it's a hard number to get a hold of because so many companies bury it and don't want to talk about it because it's super embarrassing. Mm-hmm. But probably about a $6 billion problem as far as the amount of ransoms paid last year in the US. And are these? Wow. Um, including, including like the cities of Atlanta and Baltimore and, uh, you know, lots of government agencies and like 15 municipalities in Texas. I mean, it's not just businesses mm. they go after. It's, it's just about anybody who they think might cough up. And the what dough. about, are these, are these companies that have like their own local private network? Are there, you know, they have cloud-based stuff, like all of like, how does that factor in? Yeah. I mean, lots of our clients, I'd say most of our clients have some flavor of cloud. At least their, at least their backups are probably in the mm. cloud you know, or at least 70% of their business might be in the cloud. So again, it's it goes back to understanding, well, what cloud? Do you have a cloud that does, you know, snapshotting behind the scenes so that your whole organization can roll back three weeks at any given notice? Or does your cloud not offer that? Or is that does, does your cloud offer that, but you didn't pay for it, right? So cloud is more than just a bunch of servers. Sometimes people will say, oh, the cloud's just a bunch of servers on the internet. It's not, it's it's definitely implies a lot more robustness than that, but it's not typically a backup, right? And the bad guys, when they gain access to your network as you or as your system administrators, if they've got permission to go to that cloud and change data, well, they're mm-hmm. gonna encrypt it. If they've got permission to go into that cloud and delete everything and permanently purge it, they're going to do that. So again, it's whether your data is on premise or up in a cloud, it needs to be backed up and authenticated and hopefully snapshotted and all okay, kinds so of things. Okay, so this is a big problem. So how so what's the how do you protect yourself from all that? Yeah, so we'll, I'll I'll been to rifle through some stuff just cuz you know, I could go on for another half an hour here, but the number one thing is user authentication. Uh, the bad guys are usually going to trick you into trick one of your employees or one of your IT people into coughing up their user authentication. So you have to make it hard. Username and password is not good enough these days, period. Not for your on-premise data, not for your laptop, not for your smartphone, not for your backups. So every place you go, you need to enable either UFA or two-factor authentication. Um, you need to have strong passwords. If you are going to use passwords, uh, they need to be randomized. They need to be unique to each and every site you go to. If you're one of those humans who's got two or three passwords they use everywhere, and it's the name of the street you grew up on, or the name of your dog, or the name of your dead parakeet, you have to not do that anymore. 
you need, a lot of us are traveling. We need to be able to get into our, our network. You need to be able to log in to that network from wherever you happen to be. You need to have a big thing called a hardware firewall in front of that network. You need to be able to two-factor authenticate to get past that firewall. So the software firewall on your operating system is not good enough. When you're traveling, you should have a VPN service for your smartphone or, you know, be very cognizant and be very careful of public Wi-Fi if you're not VPNing for your business, your successful business. So when you're just in your, when you're just getting started in your basement or whatever, you don't need this, but you're starting to have success. You've made a million dollars worth of sales. Get business insurance and specifically make sure that it has a cyber insurance component of that. So if you ever do get owned or cracked or whatever, that you actually have an insurance company like a Beasley or like a Travelers that's going to be behind you to actually assist and facilitate with, you know, digging out of that cyber intrusion. So, you know, again, those are, and then there's all kinds of things you can do, but a lot of people say, well, I run Norton antivirus. I'm good. No, you're not. You know, you have to do a lot of these other things. Well, I think this seems like a uh, suitable time to do a public shout out to all of our listeners, Brian, that uh, currently store all their passwords in a Google doc. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Please, please don't do that. <laughs> how good are, uh, how good are these applications like uh, like LastPass and these password uh, vaults and things like that? They certainly help solve the front end of that problem where you want to have big, you nasty, unique passwords yeah. everywhere you go, right? Um, so you should use them uh, more, you know, especially if you're a normal day-to-day -day user. Now, the password to get into your LastPass cannot be the name of the street you grew up on or your dog, you know, mm -hmm. again, like you have to have a big, nasty password that you've memorized that's in your brain to get at yeah. that list, yeah. right? Or you have to authenticate biometrically, like with your phone, like, yep, that's Brian's face. And then let's hope Apple does their job with their security, right? So you have to make sure that you don't put all your eggs in that basket and then make it easy for that basket to go. And what I do is I have a similar service like that for those like oldie time websites where you need to authenticate with strict username and password exclusively. And I have a big, nasty, you know, like, password that's 50 some characters to get into that. that and i also have a copy of it <laughs> I, I also have a copy of it in my safe deposit box in case i get hit by a bus so my wife can get at it <laughs> tattooed on your chest is the keypad to get in the safe <laughs> right but yeah i mean even better because again like there's these and I, I don't have any relationship with them but there's this thing called ufa and there's like a little you can spend 40 bucks on amazon and get yourself what's called a yubikey which will kind of, it's superior to passwords in a million different ways. And uh, some of the stuff that's coming is gonna be biometric. So you need to unlock that physical key with your thumbprint. And then it does all this nasty authentication stuff anywhere. And if you don't have that key, you're not getting into wherever you're that's trying to go. That's called UFA? Yeah, so UFA is, is kind of a, a, a theme or a protocol. Uh, the implementation of, I'm sorry, of U2F is universal two-factor. And that U2F uh, acronym is implemented by a whole bunch of companies. One of them is called YubiKey. They're making some of the most consumer-friendly and small business-friendly products out there. And again, it's Y-U-B-I-K-E-Y. If you go to, I think they're, they're flagship product, I think it's called YubiKey Nano. Um, again, I have no relationship with them. It's just free publicity for those guys. But if you, if all you did, uh, like if you're, I should do something to get serious about my security. 
you know, if you just went to Amazon and bought a $50 YubiKey and then started using it, you'd be better off than 98% right. of people out there. Right. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I definitely think we got Brian fired up on that topic. Yes. <laughs> you could hear the pack. Yeah. I am yeah. fired up. No, but that's, you know, it, and it's, <laughs> it's probably not like, you know, the, you know, the first thing that everyone's excited to talk about, right? Everybody's like, oh, you know, raising money and starting a company and sales and marketing and all that other stuff. But, you know, if you don't, if you're not secure, then everything gets taken away. That's like, that's a big Well, well big and, you know, investors are getting more and more savvy, right? I mean, a lot of times, even, even the venture capitalists these days, even small angel groups are asking for these companies that they might invest in, they're asking for their security plans and their security topography. And when they're like, well, we don't have one of those. Well, okay, so I'm going to invest a million dollars in a business that is based on a whole bunch of unique scientific intellectual property, and you've done nothing to protect it from the world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a fair point. That's I'm going to be less likely to invest in you because I don't think you've thought all this stuff all the way through. Mm -hmm. So like, when would you say this becomes like a serious thing that companies should really be looking at? Like, is there a certain point you're like, you need to, this, this is serious? For, if you're like a solopreneur, the moment that you're actually like, that is your only job and it's how you make your money, you need to be doing a lot of the little things. Mm right? And the moment you have like five or six employees whose the livelihood depends on this thing being a thing, you should probably, you know, have some like cyber insurance. But, you know, the things that we're talking about, like when should you buy a $40 YubiKey? Like now, you know, it doesn't, right. you know, uh, when should you buy like a $1,500 hardware firewall and pay a local managed service provider in your area, like a thousand dollars to configure it with two-factor authentication for you? Well, well, you should do that as soon as like $2,000 is not a daunting right. amount of money. Like, you know, if you're starting a business with a war chest of a hundred grand, you should definitely take like three or four grand and spend it on making sure that this thing is protected. Because what really sucks is when you made it, right? Like you're five years in, you're 10 years in and you're, you've got, you've earned man, you've earned it and you're living a life that you want to live and your employees are happy. You've got a great corporate culture. Your sales are up 50% year over year and you're just riding high. And then you come into the office one morning and you don't have any of your data and somebody's demanding, uh, you know, $5 million worth of cryptocurrency and you don't have an insurance plan for that. Right. And I'm yeah, guessing it's like just out of interest in those scenarios, are people left with the only choice to pay it off or what? What, what do people do? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's that's a complicated question. I mean, it, there are times where we can recover the data without paying yeah. the bad guys with our data recovery lab at Gilware. It's probably more common where they have encrypted a lot of the data, but maybe not everything. And maybe they have some kind of a plan B or they did have like a weird tape backup from like three months ago. That's not ideal. So the cost analysis on that, do we pay this ransom is, is pretty mm. complicated. It's actually a big part of our service is just talking through all that. You know, what are the ramifications if we don't pay this, right? Um, because it's not an easy 
it's not an easy thing to do. And it's often not just the company that's in those conversations. They're, they're often back-ended by an insurance provider. And depend, with this type of business insurance, this business is owed $100,000 every day that they're down from any type mm. of incident, whether it's a meteor hit the earth or whatever. You know, every day that they're down, we write a check for a hundred grand. So when there's that kind of pressure happening, well, geez, maybe we should just right. pay the thirty thousand dollars worth of cryptocurrency like right now, so that you don't have to pay them that amount right. tomorrow, right? So it it's not always it's a really interesting. And every day we have dozens of experience. We walk through this whole thought process and. Can we get around it? Do you need it? What's your plan B? What's your plan C? All right, yeah, let's let's go ahead and pay it. You know, I mean, because the one thing that's true is that about ninety eight percent of the time, when you end up paying that ransom, the bad guys do cough up the encryption certificates that we need to basically decrypt the data. So they usually do come through on their end, which is. But it's still scary every time you push that button because with cryptocurrency, mm. when you push that button, that money's gone. It doesn't yeah. come back. Well, you can't fault an ethical hacker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are, I would consider most of the people who work for me ethical hackers. You know, these folks, I guess they're ethical when it comes to, well, I don't know how ethical it is because what happens if they don't pay? A lot of these hackers have a brand name that they're trying to build, right? Uh, they're they're kind of pr- an entrepreneurial themselves, if you will. And, and you know, when they are XYZ ransomer, they want it well known on the internet that, hey, when you pay XYZ ransomer, they were pleasant to deal with. They coughed up the keys right away. Their decryptor worked. There weren't any problems. They, they want that reputation out there because if they have the opposite reputation of, hey, I paid XYZ ransomer, and they came back and double dipped on me and demanded twice as much money, or they, I paid the money and they gave me a decryptor that didn't work because they're technically incompetent, or I coughed up the money and they just ghosted me, then then the next victim isn't right. going to pay. That's fascinating. Right? There's like reviews on these guys. Yeah, it's um, like a world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yep. Yeah, there are def- there are definitely reviews on these guys. Um, well, we've got to we've got to wrap it up here. But Brian, is there uh, is there a place where people could go find out a little bit more information on you know all the topics we talked about, but in particular on protecting themselves? Yeah, I mean, if you're kind of a mid-sized business, you know, so you're emerging. If you go to tetradefense.com, that's our DFIR company. There's a, a thing called a ransomware stress test where you can kind of self-assess and you're going to need your IT guy with you. It's pretty complicated stuff. So if you have a if you're if you have a managed service provider or if you have your, you know, CTO or CIO, uh, you're going to need them there, but you can basically take a couple hours. It'll walk you through about 50 or 60 questions and then you'll come away with that having a pretty firm understanding of we actually give you like a score as far as how you, how well prepared you are for all this crap. And it also has helpful remediation videos on, on all those different topics. So you can kind of self-assess and kind of watch a five-minute video on kind of self-remediation. And that's all basically, that's a little freemium there, right? So people can do that on their own and they don't have to pay us money to do that. Awesome. Nice. Well, I uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate all that advice. I know it's not a topic we typically talk about on the show, and that's probably a good thing that we brought it up uh, today. Your ratings would plummet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Exactly. So um, anyway, Brian, it's uh, awesome, awesome having you on the show. Yeah. Thank you for uh, for all the sage advice, not only on uh, the security stuff, but on you know startup and investing and thinking about those things. For those of you guys that want to find out a little bit more about the security stuff, just uh, we'll have the link in the show notes and everything else like that. Dean, any parting shots before we wrap up today? No, just to say uh, thank you again, Brian. Echo what James just said there. It's been a fascinating show. Lots of wisdom shared, so I appreciate it. Dean, James, is a lot of fun. I really enjoy the format and the show. I'm going to be a listener moving forward. And best of luck with your Steve. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank, thanks, Brian. And thanks to you guys for listening today. We appreciate you. Make sure you leave us a review. Tell your friends and family about us. And we will talk with you guys next time. Later, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Just the Tips, where we believe business should be profitable and fun. For show notes, links, and other information on our guests, visit justthetipsshow.com. For more information on how to connect with Dean Holland, visit deanholland.com. And if you'd like to go from being a hustling entrepreneur to an effective CEO, capable of running your company without being stuck in the day-to-day, visit me for free training and resources at jamespfreel.com. Our theme music is Happy Happy Game Show by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License.